This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Come on, people now. So getting together, that's what we're seeing this week between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. They're kicking off a historic summit on Tuesday, really, in just a few hours from now. Our Kevin Cirilli is in Singapore, where the summit is being uh, taking place, I should say. Chief Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Also with us, Nasir Hajari, editor at Bloomberg Opinion, our commentary section at Bloomberg, joining us on the phone in Maine. Kevin, i got to start off with you. So this gets underway, what, in just about seven hours from now, or less than seven hours? Less than seven hours, President Trump scheduled to leave his hotel at about 8 a.m. local time or 8 p.m. New York time. And he will go and meet privately one-on-one with North Korea leader Kim Jong-un. They will each have a translator. And that meeting is scheduled to last, Carol, about 45 minutes. Then the president is going to be teamed up with a small delegation that will include his chief of staff, General John Kelly, National Security Advisor John Bolton, as well as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, Secretary Pompeo talked to us reporters earlier today and pretty much said there's going to be no deal whatsoever unless North Korea decides to denuclearize and commits to denuclearization. We should note that just this evening, it's about 2 a.m. in the middle of the night here, North Korea leader Kim Jong-un hit the town. Carol, he was out with his sister. He was out with his senior advisor, Kim Jong-chol. He was at the White House the other week. I mean, it was really a sight to be seen when you see Kim Jong-un, right. this 30-something dictator downtown Singapore, walking right in front of you. Kevin, could you uh, – that's a great piece of, uh, of, the, of what's going on there. Can you, get, can you set the scene for us? What's the buzz there before we get to Nisid? Yeah, well, you know, I've been talking with a lot of locals and whatnot, and this city has been absolutely descended upon by more than 2,500 global journalists from around the world. The security presence is tight, It is it, as is to be predicted. Uh, and this is also a city that has spent more than 50 million U.S. dollars in terms of security. Now, Prime Minister Lee of Singapore met privately one-on-one with President Trump earlier today. They had a seemingly good meeting, according to White House officials. But largely, this has come down to just the one-on-one meeting between President Trump as well as North Korea leader Kim Jong-un. And candidly, it comes as the president, when he departed Quebec, was actually watching the press conference of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, didn't like what he was hearing, en route to Singapore, literally en route to Singapore, and decided he was not going to have the U.S. back that communique. So it has been a typical, I mean, I, yeah. I, I almost want to say typical day in the life of the Trump reporter these past few days. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like the president not sleeping. I know you're not sleeping because it's 2 a.m. in the morning oh. uh, as everybody tracks so much going on. Nisit, I want to bring you in. Nisit Hajari, editor at Bloomberg Opinion. The editors of Bloomberg Opinion put out a piece that talked about kind of what might happen or what needs to happen to make sure that President Trump kind of does no harm at this meeting. Nisid, come on in on this conversation. What's key in terms of what happens or doesn't happen in the meeting between President Trump and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un? Yeah, I think, I think 
what we were trying to get at with that piece is um, a, a degree of realism, right? Uh, we know that what the U.S. would love to see out of this is an arrangement whereby North Korea would, would not only promise to give up its nuclear weapons and its ballistic missiles, but to do so quickly, because in the past they've dragged out the, the you know whatever negotiating process they've been part of, and then they've cheated, and then the agreements have broken broken down. So you, you do want to avoid that, but the fact is that uh, we are probably not going to get that out of one meeting, um, which means you're looking at some sort of phased process, and what we wanted to do is sort of lay out some markers and say, look, if it's going to take a while, if it's going to be a multi-stage process, what is it that you want to see uh, in order to know that you're getting what um, what you need? Um, you know, is it making the U.S. safer in the short run, and is it setting you up for success in the in the longer run? Nissan, what what success? What would you mark as a successful meeting here? So, for the first meeting, I think what you want to see is a clear commitment from North Korea that they do agree to denuclearize at some point, um, and that their, their definition of denuclearization is the same as ours. That, that's always been a problem in the past. They sort of use the term very vaguely to mean that they'll give up the nuclear weapons when the U.S. and everybody else in the world does. Um, that's not what we have in mind, um, and it's not what we should, what we should accept. Um, if you can get them to commit to that, if you can get them to commit and, and formalize this freeze on nuclear testing and missile testing that they've right. kind of voluntarily put in place, um, that at least stops their progress, right? So whatever happens, at least for the, the next few months, you slow them down a, a little bit. Um, and then you set up a process to talk about the, the rest of it. Um, it would be great to see some markers for what you want to see six months from now, a year from now, and so on. But at least right. get the first two steps. Lay the, lay the groundwork. Kevin Cirilli, just got about 30 seconds here. Uh, we're going to wake up yeah. tomorrow and it's all going to be over, right? <laughs> no, but I mean the meeting, right? It'll be It'll be done. Yes. Yes, the meeting will be complete, uh, but there's going to be several hours of a delegation meeting. President Trump will be in the, on that as well. But President Trump going to face the cameras at 4 a.m. local time in New York on Tuesday morning, 4 p.m. here. So he will be making public comments for New York, for, for America when they wake up on Tuesday morning. And P.S., Dennis Rodman has touched down in Singapore. <laughs> it's, it's a reality TV show, Carol. We are definitely living in interesting times. That's all I'm going to say. The best it's ratings just for 4 a.m. ever. <laughs> and you can never get any sleep because it's nonstop. Kevin Cirilli, thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Chief Washington Correspondent at Bloomberg News on the ground in Singapore with the president, Asad Hajari, editor of Bloomberg Opinion, on the phone in Maine. Ah, control. Will investors have control over all of the things that are happening in financial markets today? It's going to be tricky because you've got nearly $200 billion worth of debt sales happening today and tomorrow in the U.S. You've got the Fed meeting on Wednesday. You've got other central banks meeting, as Doug Krisner just talked about. Keeping track of it all and making sense of it all, our own Alex Harris, bond reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm out of breath already. Uh, It's a big week. um, And the bond auctions are a big deal. You know, and they actually went well. You know, I think we had there one was today, some, right? We had two today. Oh, today. Okay, we had me. a three-year this morning, and then we had the ten-year and a reopening this afternoon at one o'clock. And I think what people were nervous about is you had that massive move last week in the ten-year on Thursday, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so people were were concerned that we wouldn't have enough room for that concession. And sure enough, you know, we had enough and solid tenure with the buy side showing up 
And dealers took, I believe it was three percentage points below its average. And that was the other thing that people were concerned about is how much are the dealers going to have to keep taking here? And is this going to be an indication that we're hitting a breaking point at some point? Explain that because we, we, we say it kind of you know casually here, but you've been going into this. So what this is, is we're looking to see whether or not, you know, investors, outside investors, away from the primary dealers, away from those banks, continue to come in and keep buying and participating interested, in, right? in these auctions. Because at some point, if the buyers, if those if those buy side participants aren't interested, the dealers are going to have to keep taking more and more of these auctions. And it makes people very nervous because at some point, the dealers are going to have to ask for more and more yield. To, they want to be compensated for this. So that's what's making people nervous as Treasury continues issuing more and more debt. We're talking about investors and dealers having control, but you were writing that the Fed might not have complete control over rates. Yeah, that's a that's going to be interesting, and I think this is going to be a pivotal meeting for them in that case because what's happening is this their Fed funds rate, this key rate that they use to um, set policy, is is sort of under threat, and it's external forces. It's things like you know, treasury supply, when you jam, you know, three hundred almost $350 billion of T-bills in the first quarter of the year, you're going to upset the short end rates. You know, you're going to upset those money market rates, those repo rates. And the market reacted in kind, and that Fed funds rates started ticking up. And it's something that the Fed can't control. The Fed can control the external factors surrounding this rate, but it can't control the rate itself and how investors use it. And they have very little control here. So what they're going to try and do, I think, on Wednesday is they're going to do what everyone's calling a formal 25 basis point rate hike. So Fed funds rate sits within a target range of it would be 1.75% to 2%. And instead of making that interest on excess reserves rate, that interest that they give the banks for holding all their excess reserves at the Fed, instead of that rate matching that 2% level, it's only going to go up to 1.95%. And the idea is, while Fed funds rate is trading at about a five basis point gap to that rate, so if that's only up at 1.95%, the Fed funds rate is going to be at one9 meaning that they really have a 10 basis point spread to the top of that Fed funds You're hurting range. my brain. Okay, and so, that, and so wait, the Fed funds rate is a key rate, right? Yes. There's so much stuff that trades off of that, right? Yes. Credit card rates, other rates. And the Fed funds rate is when banks, right, want to park money overnight, and that's what they get paid on it, right? So Absolutely. if it's higher, they're more inclined to park money. If not, they're inclined to not and maybe get that money out. Yeah, to some I, extent. in a normal in yeah. a nor, in normal circumstances, I'd say that's right. But the problem is, is that with all the QE and with you know the it's distorted, that the, right? The GSEs aren't allowed to park their money. They're not allowed to earn IOER at the Fed. So mm-hmm. the GSEs said, "Oh well, forget you. I'm going to go in and we're going to lend money below that rate and below Fed fund. You know, and we're going to move that Fed funds rate down." And that's what the Fed has been struggling with because IOER was always supposed to be a floor. When they created this policy, it was supposed to be a floor for the Fed funds rate. And instead, the bottom just fell out of it because the GSE said, well, we're not participating because we don't earn that interest. And so this is where they're kind of stuck now because, you know, Mm -hmm. the GSEs almost really are driving the bus here because they have options. They can go – to, you know, they can keep borrowing or lending in the Fed funds market, or they can say, you know what, we'll go to the repo market and we'll just keep driving those rates higher because we can get more yields. So why is this all important? We just got about 30 seconds no. left. 
Because the Fed's credibility is staked on this. If they can't control the Fed funds rate, the perception is, then they can't control the balance sheet on wine and they can't control they can't control the future of policy. And that's a very dangerous thing when you're trying to unwind a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. So for them and for the last five years, you've had people from Simon Potter to Bill Dudley to other Fed governors saying this is about controlling the short end of the curve and controlling short term interest rates. If they can't do this, then people are going to be really questioning the efficacy of any other monetary policy. That would not be good, Bob. No, it's it's <laughs> kind of like the robots. Well, the bond the bond market is taking over, right? I mean, the, that's it's that's what. The... Yeah, and I and I think that's it. Is that the Fed just they're slipping here, and they need to do what they can to exercise this. Going to be an interesting week and a busy one. Alex Harris, thank you so much. Bond Thanks, reporter Alex. at Bloomberg News in our eleven three zero studio. Headlines concerning blockchain, you know, the digital ledger behind digital currencies such as Bitcoin and others. Headlines about blockchain taking over healthcare, intellectual property, the financial system, energy, just about everything. So let's make some sense of what's going on when it comes to blockchain. Alex Tapscott is co-founder of the Blockchain Research Institute, author of Blockchain Revolution, How the Technology Behind Bitcoin and Other Cryptocurrencies is Changing the World. The book originally out two years ago, now updated. Alex, based in Toronto, joining Bob Avery and myself in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Glad to be here. Talked with your dad. I know you've been to Bloomberg a couple times. So you've updated the book. What's changed? Well, in short, everything has changed. <laughs> this book came out in May of 2016. and uh, that Not was... so long ago, but... <laughs> well, in the world of blockchain and crypto assets, every year is like a decade. Um, so just to give you some perspective, when the book came out, the total value of all crypto assets in the world is about $10 billion. So put another way, if that whole market was one company, it would be the smallest member of the S&P 500. Uh, fast forward to today, and the value of this market is uh, around $300 billion. And I think it's got a lot of people uh, wondering just what exactly is going on here. It's made enthusiasts euphoric. It's made the media quite curious, and it's made certain billionaires. You're talking about the cryptocurrency I'm talking market. about the, the whole crypto asset ecosystem. Yeah. It's an, and it's made you know some people, uh, bank CEOs, you know billionaire investors, kind of apoplectic in a lot of ways. And I think it's more... Um, created more confusion than it's created uh, answers, honestly. And so what we tried to do in the new edition of the book is basically explain, uh, among other things, because we cover lots of other topics, but among other things to explain what are all these different crypto assets? Are they all currencies or are they something else? And so we lay out this new taxonomy, uh, which we think is um, probably the best and most comprehensive way of looking at the entire ecosystem. Alex, what's the biggest change in blockchain since the time of the first book coming out two years ago? Well, I think the biggest change is that... And it's important to distinguish can I say, between blockchain and the digital currencies. The blockchain is the digital ledger behind it all, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, but just to be clear, uh, it's very difficult to take the stance that blockchain is good and cryptocurrencies are bad. Uh, there are two sides of the same... You say that. Other si- people will say differently. Two sides of the same coin, so to speak. <laughs> um, no, blockchain is the enabling technology that makes digital assets like Bitcoin possible. You know, Bitcoin was designed to be digital cash a way to move value peer-to-peer. But what the blockchain enables is for us to do that with basically any kind of asset in the economy, right? Mm -hmm. Everything from financial assets like stocks and bonds to titles and deeds uh, to intellectual property and even votes. Any asset that requires scarcity, we can now transact peer-to-peer. And that means whole new possibilities in basically every sector of the economy. What's changed between two years ago and today 
um, is basically that this has gone from a fringe curiosity of a technology community that was very passionate to something that's affecting the mainstream in really profound ways. So at the Blockchain Research Institute, which we co-founded, we have over 50 large organizations as members, companies like FedEx, Tencent, Fujitsu, Pepsi, IBM, Accenture, uh, NASDAQ, the DTCC, companies in every industry who are applying resources, time, and energy to try and understand what this technology is and how it's going to impact their businesses. What's it going to be like in two years? <laughs> well, I say the future is not something to be predicted. Uh, it's but something that's exactly to be what achieved, you're here for. But it is what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think there's a few things that you can look to. So number one is you're going to see um, security tokens become a massive new asset class. If you look at the whole you know, as asset class of digital assets today, it's around $300 billion, as I said. But if you look at the global equity market, I don't know what it is today, but it's around 100 to 110 trillion dollars in value. And there's no reason why we should be trading in, tr in securities T plus three and having clearinghouses and brokers and, you know, custodians and agents and other third parties when we can transact peer to peer. And so what I think you'll see is basically the biggest migration of wealth in human history from analog to digital format. And that will happen over the next two What's years. What's a security token for our readers? A security, our yeah, a security token is basically um, a security uh, written in code. Uh, right. It's a smarter contract. That so a share of IBM now becomes a digital share. That's right. So the easiest kinds of security tokens to put onto the blockchain uh, are ones where there's no delivery in a physical asset. So the easiest examples of that would be stocks and bonds, right? right. All a stock is is an agreement that entitles uh, the bearer to you know a share of a common enterprise and the flow of cash from that business. Um, that's just an agreement. So that agreement can be entirely digitized and put on the blockchain. The same would apply for a bond, right? A bond is a mm -hmm. contract mm -hmm. that entitles you to a stream of cash flows and the repayment of principal. Where it gets more complicated is when we're talking about assets that have delivery in some physical commodity, like, say, gold or oil or natural gas. You can automate the entire business logic of that contract between right. two parties. But in the end, someone still has to take delivery of that physical commodity. So there's still a component that takes place in the real world. What about security issues? Because we've obviously seen problems in that regard. Um, how do we know? I mean, it's such a dark space. I understand it, it provides more transparency, if you will, and cuts out a lot of middle middlemen, if you will, or middle individuals. But yet problems can occur and there's a few people really kind of overseeing it all. Well, right now, there are a few big bottlenecks to the mass adoption of, let's say, blockchain for the securities markets. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you one example of the thing you're talking about is custodianship. So right now, if you're an asset management company, you need to have a third-party custodian that basically holds share certificates on your behalf. Right? right. And they need to be recognized by the regulatory authority, by the exchange, and whatever market you're operating in. Right now, most custodians will not custody digital assets. And individual firms like, say, I don't know, Fidelity or BlackRock are not, at least today, in a position to custody them themselves. So in terms of the adoption of security tokens, you know, where are these going to be stored? How are they going to be protected? What are the privacy protocols that are going to be put in place? And for now, um, that's unclear. But that's not a reason that this isn't a good idea. No, it's no, just, no. It's yeah. just a, an opportunity for entrepreneurs to, to build businesses that help to solve those problems. But it's going to be hard to convince the institutional investors and the big money people to come in unless there is adequate security that they can be, be reassured about. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think depending on who we're talking about, if it's you know bigger, more established firms, um, they will develop the systems themselves, I think, to you know manage, store, and transact in these assets. I think for smaller asset managements, they still will have to rely on um, you know third parties, which is sort of a twist of irony in this entire thing, which is that 
Although there are many ways... So it just becomes a different delivery system, I feel like. Well, in a way, the best way to look at it is that there are lots of ways, as you said, that this technology will disintermediate. But there are many ways in which firms can re-intermediate. And it's an opportunity for financial services firms today to say, okay, the world is changing. Let's not focus on how technology is going to affect today's business. Let's focus on what tomorrow's market opportunities are. Going to have to update in, what, a year now? The next version? (laughs) Every six Six months. months. It's it's moving fast, that's for sure. But it's endlessly fascinating to me, the whole blockchain thing. Well, every day is a new day to explore a new thing. (laughs) We're figuring it out. And honestly, um, every day I become less and less knowledgeable because uh, the amount that's required to take in is just uh, so so tremendous. Alex Tapscott, thank you so much. Co-founder of Blockchain Research Institute. The book is Blockchain Revolution. Joining us in our New York studio, you're listening to Bloomberg Radio. The rich are different from you and me, but the bar to be rich is a lot higher than it used to be. Simone Foxman, a hedge fund reporter at Bloomberg News, wrote a terrific story today with her colleague Shanali Basak about what banks do for rich people to keep them different from you and me. Welcome, Simone. Thanks for having me. And by the way, this is specifically the ultra, ultra, ultra rich. We're talking um, J.P. Morgan has a list of about 50 in, in, in the Americas. Um, Goldman Sachs has 60. And these are uh, deal-making families, families that do a lot of transactions. So is this the top half percenters, the top quarter percenters? It's less about the exact assets under management, um, we're told, um, more about how – many transactions do we do? So that could be someone... Active. Right. It's activity. Right. It's I'm going to buy and sell companies or my and my portfolio companies are going to have business that these banks, that will be interesting to these banks. And that, I mean, frankly, interesting is, is often fees for, for investment banks. So, so these are rich folks who are working really, really hard to get richer. Right. And, and well, I, I mean, I think we should also think about it from the bank perspective, too, is once you get to a certain level of wealth and sophistication, and it, it sort of depends for, on different families, you know, sometimes that's $500 million if you were an, um, a hedge fund person who, who returned money but still has a lot of their own and, you know, has a team and things like that. You can be pretty sophisticated at a couple hundred million dollars. Um, or your multi-billions of dollars where you're buying and selling companies. Now, these were typically folks that the banks would lose. They would sort of graduate beyond the scope of the private wealth services that banks offer. And um, but they wouldn't get the time of day um, from the investment bank. They're just not as large as these private equity funds, which are transacting constantly. Um, they don't do as many deals. They want to buy. They want to buy a company and they want it to throw off cash for a long period of time. So what the banks have kind of said is, shoot, we are missing out on this huge group of very influential, you know, clients, and let's build teams. To, to just focus on them, to try and maintain our, our connection to but them. You, but you guys point out in your story um, that wealthy families have always been kind of choice clients for bankers. So what's different this time? Is it that now the ultra-rich, it's not just about kind of your plain vanilla investments, but they want to tap into things like private equity, 
right? right. And, or what private equity goes after, like investing in companies. They're more interested in stuff like this. And, and they're kind of challenging the private equity guys. Right. Yeah. So definitely in the middle market um, transactions, family offices or family-backed investment firms, say, are, are, are becoming an increasingly important um, part of that market. Yeah. So that's absolutely true. And, and it, you know, there are just more billionaires than there were before. There are more $10 billion families than there had been. And the rich families are basically becoming private equity firms. Right. I mean, I think they're getting to that size. And it's, it's sort of it's, – it's partly a, a, a function of, of just how large they're getting. They're getting to the point where they really are – you know, they do look like investment firms, they, but they behave a little different and the kinds of opportunities that they want are a little different. And what they really want to buy when they're buying companies is often or, or when they're investing in companies are, you know, family owned businesses that, you know, either the initial family wants to get out. Um, but but, you know, the business is great or the business wants to grow and they need a partner. Give us an example of something. some kind of it's like a liquidity event, right? Right. Well, yeah, and they're going to sell or they're going to do something or it's a or it's a buy and build event. So one of the one of the examples we we point out in the story is there's a Texas based food services company called C.H. Gunter um, and um um, the the PPC partners, which is you know backed by the by the, the Pritzker family, um, uh, a wealthy Chicago-based family, right? One, it's one arm of that family. There are now several multi-billion-dollar arms of that they family. Keep reproducing. <laughs> it's like an octopus, but, but yeah, but but PPC came in and provided some liquidity to the initial family, um, and also, but also you know took you know to, um, came into this business and said we can really help you grow. And we can really help you become more of a national player. And from the traditional bankers, right, if they don't somehow get involved in this business, right, you do see those family wealth offices just hiring their own investment professionals, right, and they'll just do it on their own. Well, I mean, I think that's a really key question here. So for that transaction, J.P. Morgan um, helped, with, helped with the financing for that. But, you know, it's not clear. The, the Pritzkers found that transaction themselves. So I think the investment bankers are going to need to see – um, to really prove their importance and to be a part of this business beyond just oh I need some money let me let me tap you and for it's that. people seeking yield and looking for different types exactly. of investments it is among our most read stories uh, on the Bloomberg it's, not only in the past eight hours but in the past sixty minutes it's a terrific story and it just yeah. speaks to the uh, widening gap between the rich and the poor yeah the, I mean truly you know changing changes in capitalism so a new gilded age if you will Simone Foxman hedge fund reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio you're listening to Bloomberg. Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Dave Ellison back with us here with myself and Bob Ivory. He is 
Dave, that is, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager of Hennessy Funds, based in Boston, in Chicago today for the Morningstar Investment Conference. The Hennessy Large Cap and Small Cap Financial Funds, by the way, beating most of uh, their peers so far this year. Dave Ellison, nice to have you here. Talk to me a little bit about the Morningstar Conference uh, getting underway. Um, any indications? I don't know if you've had any conversations with folks yet about kind of the mood. Uh, so far, well, it's um, it's raining and cloudy. <laughs> and okay, it's not very warm. What so about the market? In, like I, <laughs> what about oh, the market? Right, the in, mar- oh yeah, yeah, not the weather, the market environment. Weather, Is it right. raining well, in your heart? Here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, you know, it seems like the attendance is. Uh, somebody said it's about average hmm. from historical perspective. So it's not like there's a huge number of people. You know, it's not like it's ten times the average or something. And it's so spread out here in this place that it's really hard to get a sense of, you know, how many people are here. Um, but we'll know better tomorrow, I think, when some of the some of the real sessions start. But so far, I haven't heard anything one way or the other. Uh, if I've heard anything, it's all ETFs. That's, that's all anybody cares about. Wow. <laughs> it, it, that's amazing, right? Uh, because we've seen dramatic growth in the world of ETFs. Um, Don't make- people want to pick names anymore? I, I maybe out of a hat at a party or something, but I, I, other than that, I don't think we have that. It, it'd be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out in terms of the long term. You know, there's so many new ETFs to try to slice and dice so many things that, uh, you know, obviously they're going to run their course. But uh, that's where the action is. That's where the money's flowing. You remember, you know, most of these, you know, like ours, like Hennessy's. I mean, we're we're generally struggling with net redemptions, and you you see that at Fidelity and the other the other actively managed portfolio. So, if you want to go to a place where the money's coming in, you know, the ETFs is the place to be, or that's the that's the thing to start or the thing to think about. Well, you know, most folks will say, right? It's a lot of what's going on is you know, the pressure to cut fees and so on. And I'm sure you guys have felt that as well. Uh, And that's been driving a lot of the ETF momentum and then just different ways for investors to play the market. Um, What do do you say to investors at this point? You say you're seeing you're dealing with net redemption. So, you know, how do you start to differentiate yourself? Do you say that now that global central banks are getting back to kind of more normal in terms of actions that we'll start to see some differences between active versus passive. Well, what I've been saying, and you, you know, is, is that, look, you know, there, there are merits to both. If you own index funds or ETFs, you basically are value indifferent, your company indifferent, your sector indifferent, your management quality indifferent, your governance indifferent. You're just owning it because it's in the index. And that, and that has a place. But if you're going to be active, then you're, all those things make a difference. So they are two very different types of investment processes, and we happen to be in an environment where, as you said, you know, the Fed and the central banks have allowed rates to be low. That's made the market attractive. The market's been, it's been up steadily since 2008 or 9, whenever it started to recover. And so it's been very easy to say, well, active has been hard because, you know, the market's been generally up. So all of this the new ETFs, they haven't been tested on a market that goes down for two years or, go down, or, go, or goes down more, you know, more than it has in the last five or eight years. So, again, if the central banks are going to go on this path, it's potentially going to make active management a better place to be because you, you actually care about the things that the ETFs don't. Uh, customer demand aside, Dave, you, you don't seem all that happy about the ETF trend, and it's, it sounds like you want to get back to actively managing. Well, 
you know, I'm not a, a hammer always looking for a nail. I am, I am an active manager, but I think the, the thing that bothers me is that, you know, the, the ETFs are ultimately going to, I think, you know, potentially be a problem because there's going to be so many of them that are so value indifferent. It's all about the money flow. It's not about valuation. It's not about company strategy. It's not about the better managers. It's just going to be the money's coming into the market. People are buying the stocks indiscriminately. And that, if that turns, and I'm not saying it will, but let's say it turns where people decide, okay, now it's time to get out of the market. And then you come in in the morning and every stock in the S&P is for sale. Every stock in the Dow is for sale. Every stock in the Russell 3000 is for sale because people are selling. What do you do? If you're going to be value indifferent on the way up, you're going to have the same value indifferent problem on the way down. And that could be destabilizing to the economy uh, and, and certainly, you know, obviously to the market, but certainly to the economy. Yeah, I think ultimately it will also be performance. I think it'll be interesting, I feel like, this next year or so, um, particularly as central banks, certainly here in the U.S. and perhaps elsewhere, uh, kind of get back to more normal uh, situations, whether or not we start to see more differentiation between just the passive funds and the index funds versus the active, uh, actively managed like uh, Dave's doing. Dave Ellison, thank you so much. Uh, yes. Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Funds, based in Boston, in Chicago for the Morningstar Investment Conference. It's, I do feel like, Bob, it's going it, to It's raining in Chicago, but it sounds like it's raining in Dave's heart as well. <laughs> it does. A little bit. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. We have the clothes coming your way in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 